Now, there are many things in the Christian life over which we have some ambivalence. Uh, One of these is our attitude to our families. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for making laws that reduce them their duty to their parents. He said, you have a fine way of rejecting, I'm going to put those, some of them, the short ones I just put on the PowerPoint, by the way, it's the long ones I'll get you to look up. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honour your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die, but you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. But then Jesus also challenges a man saying, follow me, and he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, their problem was they weren't keeping the law about obeying and honouring your father. This man... He had to leave the dead to bury the dead, something you would expect to be a great point of honour to the Father. Or again, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, brother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Even allowing for the rhetoric of, of, of overstatement, it's a pretty powerful thing that is being said especially as his apostle, the Apollo, right under his inspiration, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what's our attitude to the family as Christian people? See, a single quote is not going to suffice, for we have an ambivalence about the importance of family life within our life. Similarly, we have an ambivalence about individualism as opposed to communalism. See, there are two ways of thinking, one placing the individual at the centre and the other placing the community at the centre. So in Ezekiel 18, we read, The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. I was hoping this one would come up as well. Have we got this one running or not with us? I will read to you. It's uh, Ezekiel 18.20. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked upon himself. Screens are operating or not? That would be helpful too. Now, while you've got that kind of individual concern in Ezekiel, the soul that sins, the ones that dies, not the soul, not the son, yet in Romans chapter 5 we read, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." So are we going to be punished for our sin or for Adam's sin? If you're reading Ezekiel, it's your own. If you're reading Romans 5, it sounds like Adam's. Individualism, you see, emphasises my sin and my responsibility and Christ's death for me 
and my personal faith and repentance and growth in the gospel. Whereas communalism emphasises our corporate sinfulness, Christ's death for his church and the building of the body of Christ. One is concerned about my gifts and how I use them in my ministry. The other is concerned about the body and how gifts are used by all the members of the body for the common good in growth in godliness. Both teachings can be found in the Bible. Both are important to maintain the truth of the Bible and the way to live as Christians. Both have strengths and weaknesses, for both are true, and we need both to understand the complexities of life, like nature-nurture or freedom and determinism arguments. We need both sides of the arguments held in tension to be able to have a glimmer of understanding of the human condition. Each side is trying to preserve something that is true and important, but each side alone fails to present truth accurately or fully. And so this lovely word, ambivalence. We have an ambivalence about things. We, we, we like both things and we want to have both things. Now with this in mind, I want to suggest to you that the gospel is profoundly personal and at the same time, the gospel is seriously social. You'll see that on the outline that you've got in front of you in which you're taking notes. Firstly, then, the gospel is profoundly personal. It's one of the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament that in the Old Testament, God chose a nation to be his kingdom, while in the New Testament, God chooses individuals to enter his kingdom. The Old Testament kingdom of God is a chosen nation. The New Testament kingdom of God chooses individuals, like Rufus in Romans 16.13, who's identified as being chosen in the Lord. An individual chosen for salvation for, well, for the found, for, before the world was founded. Now, that is not the whole picture, because in the Old Testament people of God, there were individuals some who rejected by their sinfulness and were themselves rejected from the people of God. And other individuals chosen to be part of God's remnant of the faithful. Likewise, in the New Testament, the people of God, the church is purchased by God's blood and all Israel will be saved. So the Old Testament has some individual elements to it. The New Testament has some corporate elements to it. But yet it is one of the great differences that God chose a nation in the Old Testament and now he chooses individuals to be his people in the new. Yet the difference's emphasis is quite stark and important. For whereas those outside the nation of Israel were without God or without hope in the Old Testament, inside the New Testament, there's no point of pinning your hope on your Jewish ancestry or your circumcision. For Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, barbarians, slaves, free, all alike are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by belonging to a particular commune. The distinction commences at the beginning of the gospel 
with the ministry of John the Baptist. So turn with me to Luke's Gospel, turn Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, page 1034, Luke chapter 3. In verse 7, Luke 3, verse 7, he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptised by him, you brood of vipers, politically incorrect today to call people vipers, but there it is there, we keep it as vipers rather than snakes because there might be a chance that we don't know what it means. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. But I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Somehow, being Jewish was not sufficient. Not sufficient to enter the kingdom of God that John was preaching. You had to do something other than, more than, different than being Jewish. You had to repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus pushes it further in the discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, John chapter 3, page 1070, John 3. Picking up verse 3, he says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he be enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was on the council in, in Jerusalem. He was a true blue Jew, but yet he wasn't in the kingdom of God, not without personal, individual rebirth. Jesus' challenge to the nation of Israel was to divide the Jews between those of faith and those who feared man rather than God. You see it in chapter 8 of John's Gospel. Just come across there, 1078, chapter 8 of John's Gospel and picking it up at verse 31. By the way, the cathedral doesn't have a ceiling, so the rain sounds very loud in the cathedral because the ceiling is just the bottom of the roof and that's why we're hearing it. It most likely is heavy rain as well, but it's not as heavy as it sounds here. And if the sound's not loud enough, my sound's not loud enough at the back, uh, do go and talk to the people up there, will you, so that you can hear. Don't just sit there listening to the rain, which now that I look out a door, it is very heavy at the moment. John chapter 8, here we go, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, they're the ones in chapter 6, they had believed in him, but they withdrew from him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, truly, I truly, I say to you, 
Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you wouldn't be doing what, sorry, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Here are Jews. Here are Jews who actually followed Jesus for some of the time. Presumably they would have accepted something of the preaching and teaching of John the Baptist as well. Here were Jews who were, in one sense, the children of Abraham. Jesus said that because Abraham is the father of all Jews. But in another sense, they weren't the children of Abraham at all. They would claim, well, we're the children of God. And no, they're not the children of God. They are the children of Satan. That's pretty strong words, isn't it? That actually ramps up the idea of calling someone a viper to actually say that you are a child of the devil. But that's what they were. You see, being in the nation Israel does not make you in the kingdom of God once the New Testament comes. That's not the case at all. You could argue it never did, but in one sense it did, for God chose a nation. But in the New Testament, God's not choosing nations. He's choosing an individual. And the nation that was chosen is about to be destroyed. You can see it, well, say back in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. There is the difference. It's those who believe and those who do not believe in the Son. Or in Jesus' challenge to the crowd in Mark chapter 8, and he called to him the crowd with his disciples and he said, if any one would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus was not like one of the Old Testament prophets, in a sense preaching to the nation, calling upon the king to change the national future of Israel, telling about the coming conquest of the Romans on the nation. 
Jesus, like John the Baptist and all the New Testament writers and preachers, were speaking to the individuals within the nation and calling upon them to come into a different kind of kingdom. Evangelical faith has always been expressed in terms of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or with God through Jesus Christ. It's not enough to be born into a Christian community or into a Christian home or to be a member of a Christian church. You have to own your own commitment to Jesus as your personal Saviour and Lord. It's this personal response to Jesus that enables the gospel to be preached outside of Israel to the nations of the world. Come across to Galatians, Galatians chapter uh, 3, page 1171. Galatians 3, 1171. Where we see, pick it up in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as, see the individualistic language that is now being used, for as many of you as were baptised into Christ Jesus, put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. But yet that quote introduces the other side of our ambivalence, namely that the gospel is seriously social. For we all have the same experience of salvation in Jesus. And so we all have the same baptism into Christ Jesus. And we have all put on Christ. And as such, we are all Abraham's offspring. It's not we're all Abraham's offsprings, we're all his offspring. There is a communalism about being in Christ. Please notice very carefully here. Believing comes before belonging. We mustn't go back to the old Catholic heresy of thinking that the church gives rise to the gospel. It's the gospel that gives rise to the church. Or that membership in the church gives you salvation. It is salvation that gives you membership in the church. Or that belonging is more important than believing. Believing is always more important than belonging. Or that preaching the gospel is, we can preach the gospel by preaching church going. No, it is all possible, all too possible to be a member of the community and not a member of the kingdom of heaven. That's a mistake. We mustn't go back to making that mistake that has dogged Christianity for centuries and still dogs certain denominations. But yet the gospel is seriously social in its implications and consequences in particular, for it's about relationships. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection that ushers us into relationships with each other. The gospel's not about attuning yourself to the force like Star Wars and Luke. You don't have to kind of just get on to the the right tune level to be able to win great mitles and let go and let the force take you and be with you. That's not the gospel. It's nothing like that because God is not the force. The gospel is not doing good works that will satisfy the law. It's not undertaking religious exercises 
that will change your, your mind state. It's not like transcendental meditation where you lose yourself and you move further and further away from yourself as you go deeper and deeper into your spiritual journey until in the end you are empty. It's nothing like that. The gospel is about God and his son Jesus Christ. It's about his death and resurrection for our sins that was necessary to turn aside God's righteous anger against our rebellion and rejection of God himself. He is a personal God. And he restores our personal relationship with him through the gospel. And it doesn't stop there. For in bringing us into his kingdom, he brings us into his family. Not only do we call God our father, but we call each other brothers and sisters. Now this is seen in Ephesians 2. Come with me to Ephesians 2, page 1171. Ephesians 2, page 1171. And I'm picking it up at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, uh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, that is, all the non-Jewish nations, they're called the Gentiles, they're uncircumcised. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." The way I have been reconciled to God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is exactly the same way as a Jew is reconciled by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same reconciliation. Whether you are African or whether you are Chinese, whether you are Australian or whether you are British, whether you are rich or whether you are poor, whether you are male or whether you are female, whether, we all have this one and the same reconciliation with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that one and the same track of reconciliation reconciles us to each other as well. So there is no differentiation. There is no distinction. It's great actually to stand here and look at the ethnic diversity within our congregation here this very day. This is a beautiful thing. This is a lovely thing. This is a wonderful thing that happens. Many years ago I was in a Bible study at New South Wales Uni where there was a Cambodian girl who had been converted and come to Christ from a background that had nothing to do with Christianity. 
and during a meeting in came another girl who was a Vietnamese. This was in the 70s when Cambodia and Vietnam were at war with each other. They had been at war with each other for about a thousand years, so there was nothing really new in that. And they recognised each other by name and ethnicity, by looks, I don't know, but the Cambodian knew it was a Vietnamese girl and the Vietnamese girl knew it was a Cambodian. And they both balked and stopped for a moment or two. But then they continued in Bible study and became really loving sisters caring for each other. What the world cannot do in Christ Jesus has been done. It's a marvellous thing. It's a wonderful thing. The unity we have in Christ Jesus for God's reconciling work of man to himself was a reconciling work of man to man at the same time. It's all that we are one in Christ Jesus. But it's something that you have to put into effect. By plumbing the depth of our common experience of Christ, we must now do it. Go over the page to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore... Page 1176, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father as all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's just oneness, oneness, oneness. And what we must do is seek to maintain that oneness that is ours, which means bearing with each other, forbearing with each other, putting up with each other. In one of our congregations, we had some Greeks. And in the same congregation, we had some Chinese. They're two cultures that are not normally easy to relate to each other. One's very tactile, hugging and kissing, left, right and centre. The other is very conservative and reserved and not all that tactile and not all that hugging. And how do you connect across these kinds of divides of cultural background? Well, by, by loving patience and kindness and by knowing whether you give a big hug and a kiss and a bear hug to another man is a cultural thing, not a Christian thing. And if you want to, you do, and if you don't, you don't. And each bears with the other, and we survived in harmony and love and kindness. Chinese men learnt to kiss men a little, and the Greek men learnt to stand back and shake hands a little and bow often. We all had to learn our own ways, but it didn't matter, did it? Because what we had in common was infinitely more important than anything that would divide us. And so we strive to maintain the unity that we have, the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the one baptism, the one church, the one hope that belongs to our call. Look down to verse 15, because although there's differences amongst us, what we are to do is rather speaking the truth in love, grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the corporate nature of Christianity. We are not to become Christians to live alone. We're to become Christians to join in with Christ's people. 
Well, come across to Philippians 2, over a couple of pages, 1180. Told you there's a lot of Bible reading in this one. It's going to make up for the late afternoon one. Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in, as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. We need to take the unity that Christ has won for us and put it into effect in the relationships of our lives. And the relationships of our lives will be affected by that unity when we have the same mind that Christ had. When we think about people as Christ thought about people. When we think about ourselves as Christ thought about himself. That is, not that he was important, but other people's salvation mattered. That he would lay down his life for other people. This other person-centeredness. And the manifestation of the work of the Spirit of God, the way in which you can see the work of the Spirit of God at work in people's lives, is the way we use our differing gifts for the common good. For our gifts are not given for private edification, but for love, that we may serve one another in love, building the church. Thus it's in the discussion of the abuse of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 that we have that wonderful, marvellous corrective, that incredible chapter in chapter 13 of love. For when people are fighting and warring between themselves, they're not manifesting spirit. They're not demonstrating the spirit. The gifts are not the manifestations of the spirit. The using of the gifts for the common good is the manifestation of the spirit. You'll notice in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 that it's not manifestations of the spirit. One manifestation of the Spirit. What is the one manifestation of the Spirit? That we work in love, in harmony with each other, using our diverse gifts for the common good. That is the manifestation of the Spirit. And so the church in Corinth, which was so concerned about the Spirit, was actually the most unspiritual church that Paul writes to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
Please notice this passage. It's page 1147. It's only a little one, but I want you to notice it because most people in discussing the work of the Spirit skip straight over this one when in actual fact it's the one that sets the scene for what the whole discussion is about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, as pneumatica. You weren't spiritual at all. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now why? Why does he think the Corinthians weren't spiritual? I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving only in a human way? But when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? You see, the sign, the exhibition of the Spirit of God in my life is my love for you and your love for me and our love for each other. That love which maintains the unity and which uses our gifts not to pride ourselves, not satisfy ourselves, not fill ourselves, but use the individual gifts that we have in order to serve one another in love, in order to build the church as a whole. So the appropriate response to the gospel is a love for the other members of the family. We go across to 1 John now, 1 John chapter 4, uh, page 1229, 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, verse 7, 1 John 4:7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Individualism is not the right response to the personal gospel. For the gospel takes us into relationships with others, with all manner of others, for it's based in love and grace, not on merit or credit. Christianity being a relational religion is a social religion rather than a private spiritual journey inwards kind of religion. It's an outward service looking religion. The vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension of Christianity is not as people expect. The vertical dimension of church life is hearing God's word. It comes downwards. And the horizontal expression of Christianity is having heard the word of God, we go outwards. Most people think we come inwards to climb up. But the gospel is about God coming down that we might go out. But so far I've talked of the change relationship with other Christians based on our change relationship with God. What about those who are not Christians? Well then I want to say the gospel makes us social in our concern not only for ourselves 
for our fellow believers, but for all people, especially that they may be saved. Take, for example, the conclusion of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Turn to the end of it in chapter 10, verse 31, page 1153, 1153, the end of this long section about what to do with food offered to idols. But the general principles that come out of it are marvellous. Verse 31, chapter 10, verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here is our concern, the concern of the apostle, the concern of the Lord Jesus himself. So it must be our concern as well, not to please ourselves, because we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't please himself but became a servant and died on the cross for us. So we're not to please ourselves, but others, all manner of others, inside and outside the church, Jews and Greeks, whoever, we're to please others. Not pleasing ourselves, but others seeking their advantage. And what is the advantage that we are seeking? That they may be saved. That's what it says there, verse 33. The thing above all else that I'm concerned for others is that they may be saved. The salvation of others is now a prime controlling consequence of our own salvation. We cannot be careless about our other people's salvation if we're the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he lived and died for other people's salvation. How can I be like Christ and ignore the needs of other people's for their salvation? I am not like Christ if I do not care for other people's salvation. But my concern for them means I will put myself out for them in love, as he put himself out for us in love. But we're not only concerned then for their salvation, what about other things? Are we only interested in saving souls? What about their bodies? What about their life now? No, we're to do good people in whatever sense and opportunity we have. James wrote, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Saving souls is not the beginning and end and there's nothing else in a Christian's concern for other people. We're to love other people. If you love other people and you see they've fallen down, you don't say, well, you're already saved, so I won't pick you up. If you see other people and they've fallen down, you don't immediately say, oh, well, now that you're down, let me tell you about two ways to live. You're on the ground so I can draw it on the dust for you. It's very convenient. I'm so glad you're down there already. How is the love of God in your heart if you're going to treat people like that? It's an absurdity. John wrote, If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now once again though, 
in that one John reference and possibly the James reference. It's talking about caring for fellow believers. What about those outside the faith? Well, Paul wrote in Galatians, Let us not grow weary for doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So that as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Now there is a clear and absolute mandate that cannot be avoided, that we have obligation to everyone and that everyone cannot mean only Christians, otherwise the last little phrase, especially those of the household of faith, doesn't make sense. We have obligation to everyone. But our obligation is, in as much as we have opportunity to, here then also is a priority, a care for the household of faith. But it's not an exclusive priority for fellow Christians only, for we have opportunity to do other things. And when we have opportunity to do other things, we should. For it's right to do good. How can it not be right to be good? And if we are loving people, how can we not love them and care for them and look after them and provide whatever may be needed by them, for them? This priority of care for the household of faith is reflected in Paul's advice about widows in the congregation in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here he says only true Christian widows are to be enrolled and he says families should actually look after their own widows and not burden the church. Younger widows should look after themselves, get married again, have children, run their household. But those who are truly widows, over 60, with no one to depend upon, who have lived their lives as Christian women, who now trust God, why the church should take responsibility for them. However, while Paul rightly teaches us to be sensible in our care of people and the burdens we place upon the church for its welfare, we must remember our Lord's teaching about the Pharisaic method of minimising the law by careful definition and looking for loopholes. So the law says you must love your neighbour as yourself. The Pharisee says, well, that word neighbour's a bit dodgy, isn't it? Where do you define neighbour? The person next to me? Person two doors away from me? Person who lives in my suburb? Person who lives in my part of Sydney? Only those people who share the same kind of religious outlook or ethnic background. What's neighbour? When's a neighbour? And of course, one lawyer, seeking to justify himself, asked Jesus, then who is my neighbour? And do you remember what Jesus replied? One of the most famous parables that he ever told. He told the parable of the Good Samaritan in answer to exactly that question. And at the end of it, he turns the question back to the asker, to the inquirer, to the tester, to the lawyer. And he says, which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among robbers? For neighbourliness is what you do for others, not where they live or how close they are to you or whether they're like you. It's what you do with others. And Christians cannot help but be good neighbours for we love, we love others. 
Jesus said, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. If that's true, what more can you do? How can you then obey the second commandment? Love your neighbour as yourself because all your love has already been given to God. All your love is, is already taken up, isn't it? All your mind, all your strength, all your heart. What else is there for you to use to love your neighbour as yourself? And the answer is, that, of course, that once you enter into that love of the relationship with God, it is God who puts into your heart the love for your neighbour that you never had before. For to love God requires you to love your neighbour. And to love your neighbour requires you to do good to him, whatever it is that he may need. Though above all, and specifically, and specifically that he may be saved. So we're going to sing of the Father's love as we come now to uh, this point. I just mentioned it now so as to give musos time to rattle themselves around to where they need to be rattled around to. We're going to sing of the Father's love because it is that love of the Father that comes to us in Christ Jesus that moves us to love him that actually then gets us to love one another. You can't actually be a child of the Father without being socially concerned. For the profoundly personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ inevitably makes you a social Christian. Can't be one without the other. Let's pray before we sing. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love. Thank you for putting into our hearts our love for you. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to see, to feel, to experience, to put into action that love for others that is your love, the love that you have given to us in Christ Jesus, so that that message which has come down from you may go out from us to the ends of the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.